still struggling to taper. At my peak, I was taking 400 pills a day. I had a cardiac arrest and ended up in the hospital on a ventilator and in a coma for two days. I discharged six days later with countless tests showing that my heart was perfectly normal. Thing is, I had so much of this drug in my system that I didn't even feel the withdrawals until day five, and that's when I realized that it was this drug that caused the cardiac arrest. After I left, I educated myself heavily and never allowed myself to go over 225 pills a day, but that dose was still too much. I vowed to get off this stuff, and I started a taper. I've been stuck at about 96 pills for the last three days, and any time I try dropping the dose, the withdrawals get really bad. What kind of substance nearly kills its user from cardiac arrest, yet they still feel compelled to keep taking it, even after they survive a near-death experience? What causes someone to need to take hundreds of tablets a day and experience horrible withdrawals if they stop? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. You are listening to The Poison Lab, a show about poisoning from those who treat poisoning. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist, Ryan. And with me as always, my lovely co-host, Toxo. Greetings, human listeners. I really can't describe how excited I am to do this episode. It's about a topic that I find absolutely fascinating. Toxo, what if there was a lethal cardiac toxin that was all around us? capable of causing cardiac arrest at a moment's notice, with no warning sign. But it could only exert its effects if you took far too much of the substance. Well, that sounds fine. Just don't take too much of it. Well, what if the substance actually makes you need to take more of it, rewires your brain so you think you need it to survive, and causes horrible withdrawal if you stop taking it? Wait, you mean they created a cardiotoxin that stimulates the reward pathway? How can it do that? Well, because it's not just a cardiotoxin, it's an opioid. You mean those drugs with such a high addiction potential that taking them without medical supervision is considered a crime? Yep, those are the ones. Well, except this one. See, this one you can take as much as you want without any supervision because it's over the counter. You've seen it every time you walk through your grocery store or local pharmacy. You've probably even taken it yourself. Well, maybe not you, Toxo, but others have. It's a drug frequently used to treat diarrhea in kids and adults. Yeah, we're talking about loperamide. Imodium, the -the over-the-counter anti-diarrhea medicine. And potent opioid that causes cardiac arrest and has been for quite a few years now. What? Come on now. It's over-the-counter. How bad could it be? Well, it is safe if you're taking the recommended dose of a maximum of 16 milligrams a day. But people are taking much, much more than that to experience the opioid effects. If you don't believe me, here. These are some posts from an internet forum all about using loperamide for its euphoric purposes. Just listen to the titles of these posts. Help with using loperamide for fentanyl withdrawal. Or here's another one. I prefer loperamide over heroin. Advice. Or one about cold alcohol extraction of loperamide, meaning they're extracting the drug from the tablet so they can get a more concentrated product. 
Here's a post. Finally, after tapering for over a year, I took my last green pill six days ago. Or another one for someone who wasn't as successful. Current addict. I'm currently addicted to loperamide. Been on and off for the past seven years. I started like most others during times of opiate withdrawal. I was addicted to oxys but took whatever pills I could get. I was in university and didn't have a good supplier. I started off using huge doses, at least 144 milligrams daily, and working my way up to 400 milligrams. So it seems like we have people taking this drug for a variety of reasons, some taking it for a euphoric effect, others using it to prevent withdrawal from other opioids. But even so, many of them are winding up in cardiac arrest and still finding themselves compelled to keep using it. If this is that dangerous, there is no way you can just buy as much as you want. Oh no, you can literally buy as many packages as you want. Seriously, I did it. I was honestly curious if anyone would notice if I bought a huge amount of loperamide. So I went to a store and bought as many packages as I possibly could. 22 boxes. I even recorded it and put it in the show notes. What the heck were you thinking? That is crazy. It was a field experiment. I had to see if anyone was taking note of this. And nobody batted an eye. I bought like 600 milligrams of loperamide. The most invasive question I got was, why are you buying so many vitamins? Okay, well clearly they didn't know what it was. There is no way you could do that at a pharmacy. A pharmacist would stop you. Yeah, well you'd think that, but not really the case. How do you know? I called them, and I asked. You did what? Well, I called pharmacies. About 153 of them. Well, not just me. My co-author, Eric Everton, also helped. And we contacted pharmacies until we had three from every state in the United States. And we asked every pharmacist that would talk to us if they knew that loperamide was being abused and if there was anything they could do to stop it. And a quarter of them had no idea it was even being abused. Way less than that had any idea of how it was abused, so it's unlikely they'd even identify that abuse was occurring. Are you really referencing your own study in your own podcast? I mean, yeah, but it's like totally relevant, so it's probably okay. Anyways... Like every pharmacist we talked to, the main reason that they felt they couldn't do anything about it, even if they did suspect abuse, was, well, you could just buy it somewhere else in the store, or go anywhere you want, or buy it on Amazon. No state had any law in place to restrict sale or kind of reduce anything, and only a couple of stores kept the product behind the counter. So this stuff is just like free trade. Anybody can get it. Now, the FDA has sort of taken note of this, and... They didn't want to do anything too drastic, it seems. So in September of 2019, they worked with manufacturers to limit the package size of loperamide to 48 milligrams instead of, say, these giant 200 or 1,000 count bottles. However, you can still buy as many packages as you want. I mean, if you're throwing a cookout and you need 60 hot dogs, but they're only sold in four hot dog packages, you could still buy 60 hot dogs. This doesn't really change the amount of drug that the consumer is going to get. And seeing as people are literally having cardiac arrest and still coming back out and using this drug, I don't think limiting the package size is going to stop somebody from getting as much loperamide as they want. Although, anecdotally, it does seem to be making some ripples along the internet forums. Oh, I, I hope I don't have to clarify that I only monitor those forums out of academic curiosity. Okay, well, I guess I just don't understand why it's so easily accessible in the first place. Well, that's fair. And for that, we might have to dive into a little bit of history. Toxo, are you pondering what I'm pondering?
I think so, Ryan. But do they even make horse costumes in robot size? Uh, I... Okay. Anyways, let's dive in to the history, science, and toxicity of loperamide. Cue the history segment. Poisons in history. Our story begins in 1960, when a Belgian physician named Paul Janssen of Janssen & Janssen Pharmaceuticals, as we know it today, Johnson & Johnson, was developing opioid derivatives to help treat diarrhea. See, you have opioid receptors in your gut, and when you stimulate them, it slows down gastric movement. It decreases what we call peristalsis. So this is good if you are having excessive diarrhea, usually are becoming dehydrated, and if we slow down peristalsis, it gives more time for the GI system to absorb water and stop expelling things out the back end. This is why opioids have the side effect of constipation. We usually have to give people stool softeners along with them. Anyways, Jansen and his team had just finished discovering a super potent opioid called fentanyl, which I think most people are familiar with. As a side note, Jansen created many of the drugs that we use in emergency medicine today. Etomidate, haloperidol, and droperidol. Now, if you work in EM, those are very familiar drugs to you. Etomidate is an anesthetic, and we use it to sedate you to do uncomfortable procedures or put in breathing tubes. And haloperidol and droperidol are what we call antipsychotics. We actually use them for a lot of things, from headache, nausea, uh, they get used in schizophrenia and mood disorders, and we also use them for, well, we call it chemical restraint, sedating you if you are agitated or psychotic or maybe attacking our healthcare staff. Now, Jansen's discovery of haloperidol will be important later, but I think it's fascinating that this was both a physician and a drug developer and researcher. Gone are the days where you can treat somebody one day and develop a brand new drug the next, maybe in the future. But anyways, Jansen had just finished discovering fentanyl, uh, and then he was moving on looking for other opioids that might cure your constipation without making you unconscious, and in trying to find a drug that would stimulate the opioid receptor and not cause too much sleepiness, he stumbled upon the compound called loperamide. And he did this by combining the structures from two different drugs. The first was a super potent opioid called methadone. Most people have probably heard of this drug. Uh, We use it for advanced pain or end-stage cancer pain or as an opioid replacement therapy for those with substance use disorder. It's sort of like buprenorphine that we talked about in the last episode. Um, People will go to a methadone clinic and get a medically supervised dose of this drug, allowing them to get an opioid, not go into withdrawal, and be able to deal with their addiction. Now, methadone is a tricky drug. It's super potent and very long-acting, but it also has this weird cardiac effect where it can increase your risk of having an arrhythmia. This arrhythmia is called torsades de point, which means twisting of points. It's what we usually see on an EKG when you're in this life-threatening ventricular arrhythmia. We'll talk a little bit more about exactly why the arrhythmia occurs in a bit, but it causes you to go into cardiac arrest, which most people don't enjoy. So now Jansen has his opioid structure that can reduce the gastric motility, but he doesn't want to knock everyone out, so he needs to find a way to keep it out of the brain. Well, remember that antipsychotic haloperidol? Well, he figured out that if you combine the tail of haloperidol with the core structure of methadone, it's not able to penetrate the brain. This is actually a little bit weird, and we're going to talk about that as well in just a moment. But Jansen combined the core structure of methadone with the tail end of haloperidol, and ta-da, loperamide was born. 
an opioid that could prevent diarrhea but wasn't reliably absorbed and didn't penetrate the brain, so didn't cause sedating effects of opioids. Except one little problem. Haloperidol is also known for causing that arrhythmia torsades de point. So we effectively just took one agent that we know causes torsades and attached it to another agent that we know causes torsades. So it's probably no wonder that, well, users of this drug are showing up in guess what arrhythmia? Torsades. <laughs> so in 1977, they bring the drug to market. Even though it's a Frankenstein combination of a super potent opioid and two cardiotoxic proarrhythmic drugs, if you take it at normal doses, nobody experiences euphoria, nobody dies of cardiac arrest, diarrhea gets treated, and everyone's happy. And they're right. It was FDA approved as a Schedule 5 prescription drug. Now, for those who aren't familiar, when you schedule a drug, the schedule refers to its abuse potential, meaning the likelihood that someone will become, say, addicted to it. And when they brought it to market, you couldn't really get around the fact that, hey, this is an opioid, so there must be some abuse potential. So they put it out as a Schedule 5 drug, the lowest schedule you can get. Schedule 1 are things like crack cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA, LSD, and Schedule 5 are things like, well, pseudoephedrine. But then, after a few years on the market, Johnson & Johnson requested that it be fully descheduled. See, they looked at data from RADARS, which is a drug abuse monitoring system, and they said, this drug has been given in some 80,000 doses and we have no reported overdoses. And that's definitely a fair assessment, probably because no one was really abusing it around that time. But the request for deregulation was also supported by a study done from Yaffe, or maybe it's Jaffe and colleagues, in 1980. They took people who used to use opioids and gave them either 60 milligrams of loperamide or a small dose of codeine. These people who used to use opioids liked the effects of codeine more often than the 60 milligrams of loperamide, so it was determined that loperamide had low abuse potential. Now, keep in mind, 60 milligrams. That might be enough to produce a euphoric effect in some, but... Many users report astronomical doses, ranging from 100 to 400 milligrams daily. So it's possible that this study didn't assess a high enough dose to really detect the euphoric effects. And also, it's a very subjective study. But this study, combined with radar's data, was enough to convince the FDA that it was appropriate to deschedule loperamide. And truthfully, around that time, nobody was abusing it. So maybe it was the right call. Soon after, you could find thousands of milligrams of loperamide on the shelves anywhere you went. Gas stations, pharmacies, grocery stores. And for about 30 years, everything was hunky-dory. People took loperamide how they were supposed to, and nobody collapsed in cardiac arrest. Then, something changed. Users figured out you can actually get loperamide to penetrate into the brain. At which point, you get the exact same long-acting, super-potent, opioid effects of methadone. Now, I'll spend some time explaining why loperamide doesn't reach our brain normally and how users figured out how to get around that in the toxic mechanism segment. But the long and short is they need massive doses of loperamide, which is kind of a problem because the drug levels needed to achieve euphoria can easily also cause cardiac toxicity. So it makes perfect sense that those who are abusing this drug are at a high risk of cardiac arrest. And sadly, the toxic cardiac effects, there's no warning signs until it's too late. 
and you wind up in cardiac arrest. We'll talk a bit more about the toxicity later, but let's finish history. I may not have the most recent data points, but at least from 2010 to 2017, we've seen an increase in the amount of calls to poison centers about intentional loperamide abuse and patients being treated in the hospital for loperamide toxicity. So we're seeing not just abuse, but also adverse health consequences increase every single year. And as the medical community began to have to treat this toxicity more often, it started to become a little bit more well-known. About 50% of all loperamide toxicity case reports have been published after the year 2014, demonstrating just how recent the medical community has picked up on this. And still, it's not a very well-known phenomenon. I'm just guessing, but if I were to survey any group of healthcare workers that weren't toxicologists and ask them, did you know people are taking so much of an anti-diarrheal medicine that they're going into cardiac arrest? I'm betting less than 50% would be aware. I mean, even when I surveyed the drug experts, pharmacists, a quarter of them had not heard yet of loperamide abuse and potential toxicity. So there's certainly room to spread awareness even within the healthcare field. Like with a podcast episode about loperamide toxicity? Well, now that you mention it, I have heard the best way to disseminate information is with esoteric medical podcasts aimed at a very small demographic of listeners. Too bad that's not us with our very broad and relatable content to all listeners. So as the medical community began producing more and more case reports, the news began identifying this as a problem and running stories on it. And it eventually gained enough traction that the FDA decided they wanted to help curb the abuse of loperamide. And in January of 2018, they announced that they were going to work with manufacturers to limit the package sizes. And in September of 2019, that went into effect. So now manufacturers are restricted to making boxes of only 48 milligrams. But as we mentioned before, this does not restrict the amount that you can purchase. This was actually the entire impetus for the survey study that I conducted. Yes, package sizes are limited, but does anybody even feel like they're able to stop someone from purchasing as many packages as they want? Or purchasing them from online retailers or gas stations? Now, in the case reports that have been published, the most common reason for using loperamide is users seeking an opioid alternative. Some users have even stated that they learned to abuse loperamide in sober living groups, where they're frequently being drug tested. Because it's an easily accessible agent, and it doesn't show up on a typical urine drug screen. And if you read testimonials on the internet, many of them reference that they turned to this substance when they were out of other opioids. So its constant accessibility seems to play a role. Okay, I think that brings us up to speed. We know where loperamide came from and kind of the problems that we're dealing with in its regulation. But how exactly is it causing problems in the human body? Let's talk for a minute about the science of loperamide's toxicity. Toxic mechanisms. Before we get into toxicity, let's talk about the funky things that users are doing to get loperamide to actually penetrate into the brain. Remember, at normal doses, loperamide does not actually penetrate the brain. Well, that's kind of odd, right? I mean, it's derived from two different drugs that both easily enter the brain. I mean, they cause opioid sedation, and the other one is used to chemically sedate people. So why is loperamide not able to enter the brain? There are two reasons. The first one is sort of simple. You have a special pump on this barrier that sits between the blood and the brain that we creatively call the blood-brain barrier. Wow, so imaginative. 
Well, the pump's name is kind of imaginative. It's called P-glycoprotein, or PGP. And for the true tox nerds, it's part of the ABCD efflux transporter family. See, when this PGP efflux pump encounters certain chemicals that it doesn't want to get into the brain, it shoots them back out into the blood and keeps them from getting in. It probably played an important role while we were evolving in keeping dangerous chemicals from the brain because you don't want every single chemical you're exposed to contacting your fragile and very important neurons, or you'll probably have a few more seizures than you really want. So this PGP pump sits on the blood-brain barrier and bounces harmful chemicals off of it. It loves bouncing loperamide so much that loperamide is considered the prototypical research agent used to evaluate how well this pump is working in research studies. So something about combining the structures of methadone and haloperidol makes it a very tasty morsel for this pump. Maybe methadone is like lettuce by itself. No one really wants to eat it. And haloperidol is like a bottle of dressing. You're not going to drink that by itself. But add them together and you have a tasty salad that this pump is going to gobble up and spit back out into the blood. Now the other obstacle that loperamide has to overcome before entering the brain is getting through the gut. Bioavailability. Loperamide's an opioid. Like all opioids, it has significant gut and liver metabolism, or first-pass metabolism. If you're not familiar with these terms, check out the mini-episode between episodes 1 and 2. I've mentioned them in pretty much every episode now, so you might want to brush up. So, after you absorb the drug, most of it is metabolized. A very small percentage, say 1-2%, to 2 is available to actually get into circulation. And then, it's easily bounced off the brain by our PGP efflux pump. Quick side note for the pharmacology nerds. PGP is also found in gut cells and kidney cells. And it tends to be found in the highest concentrations near the cells that contain our drug metabolizing enzymes, cytochrome P450. Another theory of why we evolutionarily developed this efflux pump was that if drugs made it past the first round of metabolism, the efflux pump, PGP, would pump the drug back into the metabolizing enzymes and give them another chance to chew up the drug before it reached systemic circulation. That concludes your pharmacology nerd learning moment. Okay, so we know how loperamide stays out of the brain under normal circumstances. So how did someone figure out how to get it into the brain? This is where we've seen armchair pharmacologists utilizing inhibitors of our normal metabolic pathways to boost the drug effect. So we mentioned first pass is significant with loperamide, but you can actually inhibit its metabolism and allow more of the drug to get into the bloodstream by taking it with drugs that actually occupy the enzymes that normally metabolize loperamide. There are many things that can interfere with drug metabolism. This is why you might see do not take with grapefruit as a warning label on a prescription bottle because grapefruit or grapefruit juice can inhibit the enzymes that are responsible for metabolizing certain drugs and can boost the effects of those drugs. So an over-the-counter medicine called cimetidine or tagamet, it's for stomach acid, but it actually inhibits the enzyme responsible for metabolizing loperamide. That's cytochrome P453A4. <coughs> so you can effectively boost the amount of drug that gets absorbed. Now that takes care of increasing the dosage that's absorbed, but what do we do about P-glycoprotein? 
Well, there's only a certain amount of this PGP pump on the brain, and it can only work so fast. Think of it like a bouncer in a club. Loperamide wants to get in the brain and have a little party, but this bouncer is trying to keep them out. Well, there's a few things we can do. The first is massively increase the amount of loperamide that's available. And you can do that by taking very high doses and inhibiting first-pass metabolism. This way, they can overwhelm the bouncer and charge into the brain. The second option is to tie the bouncer up. Just like you can use drugs to inhibit the metabolism of loperamide, you can also use drugs to inhibit the P-glycoprotein pump. And it's not always drugs. Things like piperidine, which is a common component of black pepper, will actually inhibit P-glycoprotein. And other things, like certain antibiotics, such as ketoconazole or clarithromycin. So users, when trying to increase the penetration of loperamide into the brain, play armchair pharmacologists. They take drugs that inhibit its initial metabolism, like cimetidine, combine it with massive increases of dose, like 200 tablets a day. Sometimes they even take the drug rectally to try to avoid first pass. And then they add in PGP efflux inhibitors, like black pepper or certain over-the-counter proton pump inhibitors. And this effectively increases the amount of drug that is absorbed and increases the drug penetration into the central nervous system. I actually struggled with sharing all this information. This is not a prescription for how you should abuse loperamide. And I hope my audience is not the type that would really be doing that. But maybe if you're a mom or dad and you find your kid in the room with three pepper shakers of black pepper and 80 boxes of loperamide, you'll have a better idea of what's going on now. And this information is already freely available and well-known to many users, so I don't think I'm really giving anyone instructions here. All right, so that's how users are taking loperamide, but why are they ending up dead? Unfortunately, the dose that you need to experience euphoria is well within the bounds of the dose that's needed to cause cardiac toxicity. Now, a normal person taking even the maximum dose of loperamide will get a level of about 3 nanograms per milliliter. It's not known exactly what level you need to start affecting the heart, but there are case reports with levels as low as 22 nanograms per milliliter that show cardiac conduction disturbance, and some death case reports show postmortem levels as high as 270 nanograms per milliliter. So regardless of the exact level that's needed to affect the heart cells, those taking it for a euphoric effect seem to achieve it quite easily. Now, how exactly does it cause this arrhythmia that leads to cardiac arrest? Well, listen, if we talk about arrhythmias, that means I have to talk about ions and the flow of ions and current and conduction pathways in the heart. And I know it doesn't take long for you, who's probably vacuuming or maybe cleaning a dish right now and not listening that closely, to lose your attention. So I'm actually going to release more in-depth information on the mechanisms of toxicity as a mini-episode. And guess what? You're going to get two mini-episodes for the price of one. Wow. Two for one? What a steal. That's right, Toxo. It's a Poison Lab blowout sale. Since the cost of one was already zero, that's two divided by zero, which is impossible. So what are you going to get in these impossibly valuable mini-episodes? Well, the episode that will be labeled mini-episode two is actually a saga. It's a story about a castle being raided by a people who were ousted unjustly by malevolent rulers. And it's actually a way to understand the cardiac action potential in a more entertaining format. 
We talk a little bit about how arrhythmias are propagated as well, and this is more for listeners who don't really have a strong medical or scientific background, but are maybe curious about the batteries that run our hearts and how things can go haywire. Brian, are you telling me humans also run on electricity? Well, sort of, Toxo. We can kind of make our own currents due to the flow of ions, but we don't need a battery or to be plugged in like you do. Wow, so humble. Anything else you would like to brag about? Okay, relax. Just listen to that mini-episode if you want to learn more. The next mini-episode, which will be titled Mini-Episode 3, is for advanced listeners. We're going to describe mechanisms of something we'll talk about soon called an early after depolarization, and I will do my best to describe some proposed mechanisms for how torsades actually propagate through the heart. So we'll talk about reentrant arrhythmias, multiple ectopic pacemakers, and something called a spiral theory. All things that I am rehashing from physiologic studies I have read. I am not an electrophysiologist, but we'll try to take a more in-depth look at it. So make sure you check out the mini-episodes based off your knowledge level and what you're interested in. Now, for everyone else, I'm going to do a basic review of the toxicity of loperamide and how it can cause some arrhythmias, specifically torsade. And I'm going to be talking about two theories in particular for how torsades begins and how it's propagated. These are theories, and there's actually a debate over whether this is even true or not. There's been multiple hypotheses for how torsades really gets going. And to make things even more complex, you can have torsades from drugs or from inherited conditions. And the way that it starts might be different depending on why you are having the arrhythmia. Uh, but we're going to talk about early after depolarizations and reentrant rhythms in hopefully a more plain language than this. So the actual toxicity of loperamide comes down to two things. One, it blocks a potassium channel called a human ether agogo related gene or HERG channel. And two, it probably also blocks a sodium channel, so it can cause two types of arrhythmias. One is a wide QRS tachycardia from sodium channel blockade, and the other is the arrhythmia torsade de pont from potassium channel blockade. There, that's as sciencey as we're going to get for this episode. Now, I'll take five minutes and break down, at least in theory, why the arrhythmia torsades is bad and kind of how it occurs. So, I need you to buy into two concepts here. First, think of your heart like a light bulb. When you have a heartbeat, the light turns on. If your light only ever turned on once, you'd only ever have one heartbeat, and you probably wouldn't enjoy that. You need your heart to be like a strobe light, turning on and off, on and off, on and off, having continual heartbeats. The way that the lights turn off is a complex movement of ions that you can hear about in the mini-episodes. But essentially, loperamide, by blocking potassium, slows down the time it takes for the light to turn off. So instead of going on and off, it goes on and slowly dims down. And then on, slowly dims down. This is called prolongation of the repolarization phase. It's actually something we can measure on an EKG called a QT interval. And guess what? You don't notice while it's taking longer and longer for your heart to quote-unquote reset itself. So you don't have any symptoms until, well, it's too late. Okay, back to the heart. So you're not actually just one light bulb turning on and off, you're actually two billion tiny little light bulbs, or heart cells. And you don't turn on instantly, they don't all go on at once. In fact, the signal for one light bulb to turn on is that the light bulb right before it turned on. Sort of like how when you're doing the wave at a sports game, you don't stand up until the people just before you stood up. So it's like a wave rippling outward. Now imagine this. A wave of light goes out through the heart and you have a cardiac contraction. 
Then they begin slowly dimming down, and most of the lights are off, but one of them is still kind of slowly dimming down, and suddenly, poof, it flashes a huge blinding light. That's called an early after depolarization, and it's something we'll explain in mini episode three if you want to know more. Well, that blinding light that flashes out acts as a signal to turn on all those other lights that are around it. Now, why is that bad? Well, here's another thing I need you to buy into. Your ventricle pumps out blood, and it does that by squeezing blood from the bottom of the ventricle up and out through the opening in the top. Sort of like squeezing a tube of toothpaste from the bottom up to get the toothpaste out. So the signal for the lights to start spreading out needs to start at the bottom of the ventricle and move upward, slowly squeezing up and out. When loperamide's on board and you get this slowly dimming light that then sends out a burst, well, I don't know where that light bulb is. It could be right in the middle of the heart. So now I'm just squeezing in the exact middle of the heart. And I imagine, I guess, trying to get toothpaste out by poking it directly in the middle and then starting to massage it on either side with your fingers. It's not going to be a very effective way to get toothpaste out. This is why it can cause cardiac arrest. Instead of the signal for the lights to turn on, starting at the bottom and moving its way upward, you get the signal starting wherever that burst of light came from, which could be in the middle, the top, who knows, and spreading out in all directions from there. It doesn't really lead to good synchronous ventricular contraction, so you lose blood flow. So that big burst of light is called an early after depolarization. If that was the end of it, it wouldn't be a big deal. Maybe you'd miss one heartbeat, but you just go back to normal after that. So how does the arrhythmia keep going? Well, for that, I need to explain something called a reentrant arrhythmia, which is so much easier to do with a visual aid, but I'm going to do my best to explain this on an audio format. So let's go back to our heart. It was slowly turning off, and there was a patch that was actually not fully turned off yet, while the rest of the heart was fully off. And then as it was turning off, it let out that burst of light. Well, actually, that probably wasn't the only patch of heart cells that wasn't fully turned off yet. So what happens when that burst of light reaches other heart cells that are already turned on? Well, it can't tell those to turn on, right? Because it's already on. So it goes around it in a circle. And it goes around it in such a perfect circle that by the time it goes 360 degrees all the way around to where it started, that tissue is ready to go again. Literally, think of it like the wave at a football game. The football field itself is an area of non-propagating tissue because it's still repolarizing. And then the signal is going around it in a wave. Now, the signal for me to stand up is the people right before me standing up. So I see them coming and I, whoo, do a wave. But then I sit back down. And when the signal comes back around to me, I'm ready to stand up and cheer on the Packers. Now, each time that signal goes around in a circle, it sends off waves of depolarizing light to all the other tissue that it's touching. So I'm sending off depolarizing signals everywhere. And if I have a few areas of refractory tissue, this acts as a pacemaker, sending out the signal to turn all the lights on and off from the wrong part of the heart. So the initial signal comes from this burst of light that comes out of these slowly dimming lights. It's called an early after depolarization. That depolarization then finds 
areas of refractory tissue, because remember, we're slowly turning the lights off. So there's actually a few areas that are still on when this signal gets sent out. And then it spins around those areas of tissue, firing off depolarizing signals in every direction from multiple different areas. So instead of getting a nice bottom-up squeezing of the tube of toothpaste, I'm basically poking the tube of toothpaste about 100 times at 50 different points on the actual tube, uh, trying to get things out. But I'm not doing it very hard. So basically, there's just like a little splutter of toothpaste coming out of the top. Okay, I think that wraps it up, if you're still listening. This has been Torsades de Point, an audio tour. Loperamide prolongs that ventricular repolarization phase. And remember, we can measure that on the EKG, like I said, with something called the QTC interval, or there's other methods like T-peak to T-end. Uh, but either way, as that interval prolongs, you don't really feel any different. And in order to go into that arrhythmia, you need to have the right pieces of refractory tissue uh, meet the right depolarizing signal. So it's a little bit of chance, but of course that chance goes up the longer that you live in a state of prolonged QT and the longer your QT is. And you don't feel any different while your QT is prolonging. So users who are on loperamide think, oh, I don't feel any cardiac effects. I must be doing fine. But the whole time, loperamide is having its effect. And you don't feel any different until you wake up, hopefully, after a cardiac arrest in a hospital or an ambulance. Okay, so in terms of treatment, well, there are some things we could do for that arrhythmia. So we can shock you, which turns all the heart cells on at the exact same time, and hopefully terminates that reentrant rhythm. Sort of like making everyone who's doing the wave stand up at the exact same time. Well, now there's nowhere for the wave to start, right? Because everybody's standing. Now, another issue is the slower your heart rate is, the longer you're in that repolarization phase. So we can speed your heart up very fast with something called overdrive pacing, where we use drugs or electricity to put your heart rate up closer to 100. And then even though it's still taking you longer to repolarize, the whole cycle is going so quickly that you're less likely to go into the arrhythmia. Then one of the primary treatments is magnesium, a regular old electrolyte. For somewhat complicated reasons, it prevents those early after depolarizations or those bursts of light that may trigger torsades to begin. So we can use it to help prevent you from going into torsades. And then we have antiarrhythmics. So one specifically, lidocaine, uh, complicated, but it shortens your action potential, which means you're less likely to have an early after depolarization. And a whole slew of other things like optimizing your electrolytes and reducing ischemia uh, if it's related to the arrhythmia. I'll also mention that some reports have mentioned prolonged QRS, which is a function of sodium channel blockade, which we normally treat with sodium bicarbonate, where we give huge amounts of sodium to overwhelm the sodium channel blockade. However, we're not really going to dive into that at this point. And if you don't know what any of those words mean, well, just don't worry about it. But all of these therapies are directed at treating the arrhythmia. How about treating the toxin? Well, first I would have to know that you were even taking the drug, and that's not very likely. Remember, this drug does not show up on routine opioid urine drug screens. That's one of the reasons that some people actually like it. It's an over-the-counter substance, so you could take it without anyone knowing. It doesn't show up in any prescription drug monitoring database or on your medication list like it's prescribed by a physician. So the only way I can know you're on it is really if you tell me or if we find some evidence of a hundred boxes in your room. And if you show up in a cardiac arrest, you're usually not in the state where you can actually describe what meds you're on. You know, I can think back to a few cases where 
I had a younger person in the ICU and I was getting consulted because they had persistent arrhythmias. So they were going in and out of VTAC, um, probably in torsades. And their QTC was like 700. Now there's no loperamide on their medication list because it's an over-the-counter drug. Both of these patients that I'm thinking of uh, were users of Suboxone. So they did have an opioid use disorder history. Um, so I kind of had a feeling that it might have been related to loperamide. Uh, maybe they were using loperamide to bridge while they were out of Suboxone. But I have no way to prove it. And even if I do, it doesn't really matter because I, there's not much I can do. So with that, maybe we can do a brief overview of the treatment of loperamide toxicity. If I think about my toxicology treatment principles, well, I could try to decontaminate the patient, which is remove the toxin from them. But usually these are chronic exposures. So there's not a huge role for activated charcoal in a chronic ingestion. Maybe if you took a whole bunch all at once. If I think about supportive cares, well, that's the arrhythmia management that we just discussed, as well as maintaining a patent airway. Obviously, loperamide is an opioid, so it is possible you can have opioid-induced respiratory depression. Although, honestly, I don't usually see users presenting with that. Or at least, I more often get called when users have an arrhythmia than just some sleepiness and depressed breathing rate. How about reversing toxicity? Well, if they happen to present with isolated respiratory depression, I guess I could use naloxone. And then enhancing elimination. Loperamide is super protein-bound, at least at therapeutic doses, so it makes it bad for dialysis. You could use something called protein-bound dialysis, which is like a Mars machine or single-pass albumin dialysis, but that's all theoretical. No idea if that would help or not. Although, given the massive quantities that users are taking, I would imagine that some degree of protein-binding saturation occurs. This is theoretical as well, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, just regular intermittent hemodialysis would be able to clear uh, some loperamide in a massive overdose because there might be excess levels of free loperamide floating around if they are taking gigantic doses. That said, I rarely know that they're on this drug I need to try and treat anyways. They are the only one that knows that they're taking it, and if they show up in cardiac arrest, it's unlikely they'll give me a good history. It's an over-the-counter med that they can have access to without a physician prescribing. It's not documented in any sort of uh, prescription drug monitoring database, and I can't really test for it in any reasonable manner. Even if I could, I'm not sure it would change management. At the end of the day, you just support them through it while they metabolize the drug to freedom. The unfortunate part about that is the metabolism in overdose can take quite a bit longer than in regular doses. You know, those half-lives of drugs, they're figured out when like a young, healthy person taking a very small dose of something. Uh, well, it turns out when you take 10,000 times the amount of something that you're, <laughs> you take, it changes the kinetics of the drug. You know, you saturate enzyme systems, you change your protein binding, uh, all which have effects on how quickly you can clear a drug. So we have this phrase in toxicology, which is, pharmacokinetics do not equal toxicokinetics. You can't use the half-life of a drug that you find in, you know, some drug reference that's based off of a normal, healthy adult to extrapolate how long you'd expect to see effects in a toxic overdose. I like to think of it like you can't extrapolate the effects of eating one cup of pudding to the effects of eating a bathtub full of pudding. 
So point being, you know, the half-life of lipiramide is like nine hours at a, in a regular person. So you'd expect all the drug to be out of their system in about five half-lifes. That's our rule of thumb. That's when about 99% of the drug is cleared. Um, so that would be like 48 hours roughly. But in overdose, well, there's data to support that the half-life goes up about 40 hours. So then we're not expecting the drug to clear your body for... I don't know, say 200 hours. So some of these people have really prolonged QTs and are at risk of going to this arrhythmia for many days. Well, Ryan, if people are taking so much of this antidiarrheal that they are going into cardiac arrest, and we rarely know they are on it and can't do that much to treat it, what should we do? Well, that's a good question, Toxo. I mean, we want people to take less of this. We, we don't want people to go into cardiac arrest. I get, I really get why they take it. I mean, May, a lot of these people are probably looking for ways to avoid withdrawal or to be able to more easily manage their opioid addiction due to accessibility. I mean, we have created the system where they have unfettered access to this. And another part of the system driving them to use this drug is that in order to get access to other opioid replacement therapies like methadone or uh, suboxone, I mean, there's a lot of hoops they have to jump through. There's very few providers that can actually prescribe Suboxone and Methadone. They usually need to go to a clinic. So I guess one thing we could do is make it easier to access opioid replacement therapies for anyone who's seeking recovery. But how to reliably do that is probably beyond the scope of this discussion. Uh, there has been a lot of good efforts from emergency departments to start prescribing buprenorphine or Suboxone straight from the ER. So I applaud that. But... The other part of the system we could fix is reducing the easy accessibility of the drug. And I appreciate the FDA efforts where they're trying to reduce the package size. It's definitely made a wave in some of the internet message boards, but people can still buy as much loperamide as they want. You just have to buy more boxes of it. I know there's one abstract coming up at this year's North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology that is looking at... Uh, the impact of that FDA restriction on whether or not it's reduced calls to poison centers, I think, or maybe overdose deaths from loperamide. But I, I don't know the results. I haven't read the abstract. I'm really interested to see what it says. But at the moment, we don't know. And in fact, at the moment, all I know is that users can buy as much loperamide as they want and that pharmacies feel they're not really able to restrict loperamide access and that it's available online. So the only real way I could think to actually restrict access would be to reschedule the drug. And this doesn't mean it needs to be in a locked vault, but you could just put the drug behind the counter or put a quantity restriction on it, just like Sudafed. I mean, it actually came out as a Schedule 5 drug. And then they said, oh, look, nobody's died after 80,000 doses. I think we can unschedule it. And they did. But clearly, as people are going into cardiac arrest and more and more case reports of using this drug to prevent opioid withdrawal or to achieve a euphoric effect are being reported, it does not strongly meet that criteria. So how do you get a drug rescheduled? Good question, Toxo. Well, the Controlled Substance Act says that any interested party can petition to change the schedule of a drug, including individual concerned citizens, medical organizations, or drug companies themselves. And guess what? Some people have already asked for loperamide to be rescheduled. Per FDA documents, in 2016, a psychiatrist from Chicago submitted a request to actually reschedule loperamide to the FDA, and it was denied. So uh, I'm not in regulatory affairs. I don't know exactly how it works, but the details of the denial were written up by the Consumer Healthcare Products Association. 
And it does appear that they actually consult for the FDA to assess whether it's a reasonable request to reschedule the drug. So they actually did the legwork and wrote out a long explanation of why they don't think it should be scheduled. However, if you dive into their rationale, there's quite a bit of room to argue against the points that the Consumer Healthcare Product Association made to keep loperamide unscheduled. First, they state that one reason it should not be scheduled is because there's a clear disassociation between the therapeutic gastrointestinal effects and the uh, central nervous system euphoric effects. Though, on the opposite side of that, I think that makes it a good candidate for a quantity restriction. You need very little of the drug to actually have your therapeutic effect. So, if you put a quantity restriction on the drug of, say, 500 tablets a month, that would allow someone to take the drug every single day at the maximum FDA-approved dosage and prevent people from taking doses of, say, 100 to 200 milligrams per day. And if you need more than 500 milligrams of loperamide a month to treat diarrhea, you should probably be in a relationship with a healthcare provider anyways who could then prescribe you an additional quantity. The next point they brought up was that it's not very euphoric. They actually cited the study that we talked about in the beginning where they gave users either a 60 milligram dose of loperamide or some codeine and figured out that more people like the codeine. Except clearly users like it quite a bit as they're going into cardiac arrest and still taking it afterwards. And that study looked at 60 milligrams. People are taking up to 400 milligrams a day sometimes. So I'm not sure it's an appropriate extrapolation to say that there's no euphoric effect. And their next statement is that changing loperamide from OTC to prescription is unlikely to meaningfully alter the already low numbers of misuse and abuse. However, the data that they cite as incidence data is poison center data. That's not very good incidence data. Those are just the calls that we got about loperamide overdoses. There are many, many, many more that go undetected by poison centers. So we don't really know how often this is actually occurring. Remember, clinically, we don't know if you're on it when you show up in the hospital in Torsats. Finally, they go on to say that other opioids are scheduled, yet are still abused. So it's not clear that scheduling a drug has any impact on its abuse. However, on the opposite side of that argument, why do we schedule any opioids if it doesn't have any effect on their abuse? And while I don't have evidence to support this, it does appear that some part of the abuse of loperamide is due to its ease of access. It's not exactly easy to consume hundreds of tablets. I mean, I suppose it's possible that it's a euphoria that is simply far and beyond any other opioid, which is why they're going through such lengths in order to actually use the substance, or it might have to do with the extreme availability of it, that it can be used even when they're out of any other source of opioid. So, anyways, four years ago, when there was an initial petition to reschedule this drug, it was denied, for the reasons that we just went through. And as you can see, you could argue the points they made from both the perspective of scheduling and not scheduling. So whether it was the right decision, well, I'll leave that to you. Perhaps as we continue to gather more information regarding the effect of the FDA initiative to reduce package sizes and the true incidence of how often abuse and subsequent cardiac arrest is occurring, another petition may be filed. I've certainly seen more than one article in the literature questioning whether loperamide should be over-the-counter.
And of course, this might be a small portion of the population. And lopiramide is not the only over-the-counter being abused. There's many things that people take recreationally. Dextromethorphan from cough medicine. Um, even diphenhydramine some people try to abuse. But no other substance that I could see seems to be reliably producing such a state of severe dependence as loperamide is. And its risk of severe cardiac toxicity is very concerning. I don't think this needs to be a prescription drug, but it does seem that it would be a good candidate for a quantity restriction or behind-the-counter status, similar to over-the-counter codeine cough syrup. I don't know. Uh, anyways, I think that's the end for today's episode. I know we went on a lot of tangents. Here's a quick recap of the things we went over today. Loperamide is an opioid that doesn't normally penetrate the brain, but when taken with other drugs that inhibit its metabolism or shut down the efflux pump that keeps it out of the brain, it can have potent opioid-like activity, but it's also a serious cardiotoxin. The cardiac effects tend to manifest as an arrhythmia called torsades de point, and the effects are generally not noticeable by users until it's too late and they've had a cardiac arrest. Its toxic effects are governed by potassium channel blockade. Essentially, loperamide causes certain sections of ventricular tissue to take too long to reset which causes the ventricles to get out of sync when something called an early after depolarization reaches that refractory tissue. And it can propagate what's called a reentrant arrhythmia, which interferes with the synchronous contraction of the ventricle and leads to ineffective ejection of blood. Treatment of loperamide toxicity is almost entirely supportive care, managing the arrhythmia while they metabolize the drug. I'd like to point out here that there are American College of Medical Toxicology guidelines for loperamide toxicity, written by Willie Eggleston and his colleagues. Uh, and they basically mention you should use supportive cares and that more healthcare workers need to know that this is a thing, of which I absolutely agree. Few people in both the public and the healthcare setting are aware that loperamide abuse is causing these cardiac arrhythmias. And if you show up to a hospital and you're in an arrhythmia, from loperamide? Well, we can't test for it, and there's really no way we would know unless you told us, which you can't really do if you had a cardiac arrest. Users take loperamide to prevent opioid withdrawal or for its euphoric effects. It was originally approved as a Schedule 5 prescription drug, but is currently totally unregulated. More research is coming out on whether or not the FDA initiatives to restrict package sizes really had any impact. Wow, what a fascinating subject. Isn't it, though? And such a weird thing that our society has allowed to sort of come into existence. Well, that's it for today's episode. I, I hope you learned something interesting about a poison that's been right under your nose this whole time. Okay, before we wrap up the show, I have a couple of announcements. So first, we're going to change it up for next month. We actually have a guest joining the show. Matt Stanton, a clinical mentor and colleague of mine who's also an emergency medicine pharmacist and clinical toxicologist. And we are going to try some different things. So instead of a deep dive into a poisoning, Matt and I take a shot at answering some questions from the internet about poisoning and then go through a couple of fatality cases and try to figure out the differentials of what could have caused the toxicity. I think it's a very educational and pretty entertaining episode. So I hope you can listen in. Now, that episode is much more directed towards healthcare workers. There's no plain language summary of toxicity or history of toxins. But if you've been craving more in-depth discussion of the medical management, this could be your episode. 
And if people like it, uh, we'll probably do a few more episodes like that or maybe start a series uh, where we follow that platform. Then for the episode after that, we're likely going to go back to uh, a deeper dive into a specific poisoning uh, like we've been doing or maybe a couple of poisonings. So since we didn't get to do our normal listener email section in this episode and in the next episode, there's no case for you to write in about, I'm actually going to play two cases right now. We'll either do both of them in episode six, or maybe it'll be for episode six or seven. But get ready. These are some interesting toxins. So keep your ears open, and if you think you know what's going on, make sure you send us an email at ToxTalk1 at gmail.com. Toxo, can you roll the cases? Case one. A 21-year-old female presents with new symptoms of decreased vision. Approximately eight hours prior, they were attempting to conduct the cinnamon challenge, where they consumed a tablespoonful of powdered spice. They initially believed it to be cinnamon, but didn't read the label, and later confirmed it was not. They immediately experienced symptoms of tinnitus, or ringing in the ears, as well as dizziness, headache, and flushed skin. They laid down for a few hours, but the symptoms did not dissipate, and at the onset of worsening vision, decided to seek healthcare evaluation. Case two. A married couple in their 40s presents to the emergency department. Each patient is displaying signs of an inferior wall myocardial infarction, or heart attack, with ST segment elevations in the inferior leads of their EKG. They each have hypotension with systolic blood pressures in the 70s and bradycardia with heart rates in the 30s to 40s. The bradycardia and hypotension immediately resolves after atropine. They're taken to the cath lab to treat their suspected heart attack, but no heart attack can be found. No coronary arteries are blocked. The couple revealed that they had recently purchased a natural sweet tasting food that was touted as a sexual performance enhancer. The couple had been ingesting one teaspoon of the substance each day for the last week, but before presenting to the emergency department, they increased their dose to a full tablespoon, which led to them both showing false signs of a heart attack and severe life-threatening hypotension and bradycardia. All right, that'll wrap it up for this week. Some very interesting cases that we'll get to dive into. Thanks again for listening. Send in to TalksTalk1 at gmail.com to take part in the next episode. Until next time, hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.